and he gives instance after instance showing who Jesus was. And today at the, at the empty tomb, we meet several people faced with that question. It's, it's not just a, uh, a saying at Easter, but it's really true that Christianity rests on the resurrection. Without the, the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus, as a whole, the Christian faith collapses. We would have no basis for explaining anything at all without the resurrection of Christ. The Bible says we would still be in our sins. Without the resurrection, we have no basis to say that we can come into any kind of relationship with a holy, righteous God, and no basis for saying there's an afterlife, nothing, no basis whatever. In fact, all that we would have left is some nice moral teaching which we could ignore or pay attention to. So what happened that first, uh, what we call Easter morning? How do we explain it? Mark tells us beginning in verse 40 uh, about the women. And he tells us that when Jesus died, there was a group of women who watched it, who saw it all, and they witnessed it from a distance. These women were not strangers to Jesus. We know from verse 41 that they had cared for the needs that he and his disciples had when they were in Galilee. And so they watch from a distance. They watch everything that unfolds. They watch Jesus die. Now, why would Mark make a point of this? Uh, That would almost seem obvious. There were people there watching. Why is this significant? Well, two reasons we believe Mark points this out. Uh, He uses a term saying they watched, but it's, it's it's a specific term saying they watched with scrutiny. They are closely watching every detail, close scrutiny. Mark is wanting us to know then that two days later on that first Easter morning that they did not go to the wrong tomb because they had watched very carefully on Friday his death and his burial, and they saw where he was buried. So on that first Easter morning, they had not gone to the, to the wrong tomb. So Mark wants us to know, he wants his readers to know, that that was uh, not to be considered since they watched so carefully. Secondly, during Mark's day, the testimony of a woman was not accepted as evidence in court. That's just the way it was at that time in history in that place. And if Mark was trying to embellish the account or make it more believable to skeptics, he would have used men. He would not have mentioned the women. He would not have invented women witnesses because he wanted them to know that this was historical. And so by stating that the women were the witnesses, the historicity and the reliability of the count is more confirmable. Now, in verses 42 and 46, we are brought another person, another character enters the picture named Joseph of Arimathea. Another theory proposed by the opponents of the resurrection, even in in the New Testament times, was that Jesus never died, but he just swooned. He passed out from lack of water, dehydration, and, and what he had endured through crucifixion, but Mark helps us to understand that Jesus actually died. So here's this man named Joseph, and he mentions who he was, where he was from, so that those who read the gospel of Mark could go and talk to this man. He could be investigated as a witness. It was normal for the Romans to leave the bodies of those crucified, to leave them to the vultures, But Jewish custom required that even criminals be given burials. So verse 44 tells us that Joseph comes to Pilate, uh, the Roman authority, and he asks for Jesus' body. 
Pilate is surprised to find out that Jesus has died only a matter of hours after being crucified, since typically it would last at least two days, sometimes more. So he sends a soldier to confirm that Jesus is dead. Pilate then grants Joseph's request to bury Jesus' body. Joseph had Jesus' body sealed in a rock tomb. He has this large stone rolled in front of it. And by drawing our attention to actual events for which there were witnesses, Mark is highlighting the historical nature of the Christian faith. And among the religions of the world, Christianity, you realize this, if you study comparative religions, if you're a college student reading and studying comparative religions right now, among the religions of the world, Christianity is unique in that it stands or falls depending on whether certain historical events took place. Now, that is, that is not true of other religions. Take away any of those events, you no longer have Christianity. Prove they did not take place, and you have successfully destroyed the whole system of the Christian faith. That cannot be said, well, if you prove that Confucius did not live, if you prove that Buddha or even Muhammad did not actually exist, then those religions that are based on their teachings would not change. It would not affect them because their existence is not fundamental to the belief systems. Their, well, the reason is because they are primarily ethical and philosophical systems, but Christianity is different. That's why the Apostle Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, if there was not this historical event, then our faith, those of us that claim to be followers of Christ, is futile. He says, you are still in your sins. In other words, there is no forgiveness of sins with a with a holy God. If only for this life, he says, if we have hope in Christ. In other words, if there is no really a resurrection from the dead, and so we only hope in this life, he says we're to be pitied. People should look at us and say, I feel sorry for that bunch of fools. They're believing something that never happened. Chapter 16 moves on now to witnesses of the resurrection. I just mentioned some witnesses to his death and burial. And again, we find the women. They come to the tomb. What were they expecting to find? They were not expecting to find a, uh, an alive Jesus. They were not expecting to find a resurrection. They were expecting to find his dead body in that tomb. That is fully what they expected. There was no doubt in their minds. That's why they had the spices. The spices were not for embalming, they were for performing a perfuming measure on the corpse. It was a gesture of respect and love. Well, on the way, it tells us they are discussing, what are we going to do about the stone, this huge stone in front of the tomb? How will we be able to move it, to be able to get inside to, to put these spices on the body? Well, they get there, and they're surprised that the stone's been rolled away. Verse 4 tells us that. They're you can read other details, but these stones were massive, and it would take many, many people to have moved such a stone. Verse 5 says they enter the tomb, and they see a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they're alarmed, they're frightened. I would assume everyone here, or most of us, have had someone very close to us, a relative, uh, maybe a parent, maybe a, maybe a close friend that has died. And, and we've been to their, their funerals, and you know the grief and the emptiness when you drive away from the cemetery after everything is over. Now, whatever emotions you can identify with as you think about that and how hard that was, that was the emotions going through the, the hearts of these women. 
and they had watched in horror what had happened two days before, and they had watched the burial, and they'd seen it. Now, what if, well, now back to us, what if it had been a couple of days since the funeral, and you're a member of this church, and it's a beloved member and one of your relatives, and you say, hey, Chip, it was a couple of days ago we did the graveside. You were there. Why don't we take some flowers this afternoon? I said, I'd love to go with you. have a prayer there at the graveside. And as we drive up over here at Riverside Cemetery, no one's there, but we see a mound of dirt by the grave. And I jump out of the car real quick, and I go over and I look. Somebody's opened the, the vault, and the, the, the casket is open, and the body's gone. And we look and say, look at this. What's happened? Would we immediately think, resurrection? No, we would think somebody stole the body. Somebody stole the body, and we would be upset, and we would be shocked. Who did this? This desecration. Why would anybody do this? That's exactly the way they felt. And it says they were alarmed. They're fearful. That's the kind of terror they had. Mark wants us to see that this young man dressed in a white robe, he intends for us to understand this is an angel. And the angel proclaims the truth. He has to tell them what's happened. Jesus has risen from the dead, as we just heard. And then he asks them to look at the place. Look, look where they laid him. He wants them to be convinced that the tomb is empty. He's trying to verify it, not perform some kind of magic to fool them. He says, look, look where the body was. You saw that it was laid there. Now it's gone. So it was a fact to which they could later attest. He wanted them to see that death could not hold Jesus. That all that Jesus said was true. In fact, it ends with just kind of a glimpse of what's going to come later with what's called the Great Commission to go and tell, to go and tell all nations. Verse 8 gives us the response of the women to the angel. They're shocked. They tremble with fear. This is not the reaction of, of people who viewed resurrections as commonplace or saw miraculous as normal. Sometimes today, you read the Bible or you you think about the Bible times, and it says, oh, man, every day they just, you know, they just thought miracles happened, multitudes were fed, people walked on water, dead came out of tombs, you know, you're on your way to work, another grave's open there. No, this was just as unexpected to them as it would have been to us. They're amazed, shocked, and full of fear. That's how Mark ends that account there with the women at the empty tomb. Just a few observations as we wrap this up. Christian, your faith has a historical basis. If you're a skeptic here, if you're a seeker, if you're an atheist, um, there's never enough evidence, you might say, to be overwhelming. But there's sufficient. There's sufficient to believe. It was not dreamt up. It was not created by the disciples or the Roman Catholic Church hundreds of years later to fool and to oppress people. It was right there. The scriptures are not like any other book. They've been studied. They've been dissected like no other. And, and you, they are trustworthy. You can rest your faith on them. Second, to believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ is necessary to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower, to be right with God. That, is, that seems to be uh, up for grabs today. You have people in churches that say, well, you know, if there was a Jesus, these are people that claim to be Christians. Yeah, I think there was a Jesus. Well, even if there wasn't, I believe what he taught. Now, that makes a lot of sense. Even if he didn't exist, I believe what he taught. Uh, or I, I think he rose in the hearts of his followers. They saw what they wanted. <clears throat> they were so filled with optimism. 
and I might add, and later died for it, that they dreamt this up like these women know. One of the things I greatly appreciated about the late atheist and author Christopher Hitchens, um, and I would say his death was a tremendous loss for our world and for even the Christian faith. Here's why. You say, why would you say that? If you heard Christopher Hitchens or you read some of his books, he attacked everything that Christians hold dear. I, yes, but he made us think, and he didn't create straw men. It seems like even now, everybody creates straw men and yells at them and calls them names. And Christopher Hitchens understood the Christian faith. He didn't agree with it. He didn't believe it. Uh, but he, when he would attack it, at least he presented it accurately rather than distorting it and then attacking that dis- distortion. Well, in 2007, he had just written his book, God is Not Great, While Religion Poisons Everything. <laughs> That'd be a sermon title, wouldn't it? While Religion Poisons Everything. And he was on a book tour. And he was in Portland, Oregon. He was promoting this bestseller. And so along the way, there were various debates he would have. And he's in Portland, and you can read the entire transcript online. But there was, uh, he was to be interviewed by a Unitarian Universalist minister named Marilyn Sewell. So she's doing the interviewing, and she starts off and says to him, the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. And then she went on and said, I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from the Bible literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. And she went on and said, do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? And here's how Christopher Hitchens answered back. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. And I said the first service, preach it, Christopher. So here's this well-educated atheist like him who knew it was impossible to, be a, to call yourself a Christian and not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Well, third observation, and that is what is the nature of faith? What, is the, what does it mean to believe? We, in church, we use those words constantly, believe and we know they say you should believe in Jesus and have eternal life. Well, there, there are several aspects. One aspect is there must be some information to be received, uh, some facts, some data, some knowledge that's truth about Jesus. That's what Mark's trying to do. He's trying to give these people facts about his life and his words, his perfect life, uh, his death, his resurrection, why he came to die. And so there's a certain body of knowledge. It's not a whole lot that someone needs to know. Uh, it's, it's not at Ph.D. level. It's probably more to kindergarten level, if that. Knowledge we need to know. But that knowledge is not just head knowledge. It's not just academic assent. It's just not mentally agreeing with something because this type of knowledge affects everything. It affects everything I do once I commit to this knowledge. That's why some people, perhaps some of you, have chosen not to believe. Because you are intelligent enough and you are bright enough that you don't want anything altered in your life. And you've concluded, if I really believe that, it's going to affect the way I live, and I've got a pretty nice life, and I don't want it affected. 
And so you recognize there are demanding implications or there are revolutionary implications that if you believe that, truly believe that, then it will change your life. And you are right. You are very right. They are demanding and they, very, they are very much revolutionary to believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now listen, it is in, it is in believing Jesus was raised from the dead is not to believe only that he was raised from the dead, but that in being raised from the dead, it validates all that he said and taught. So it's not just believing that one instance that he was raised from the dead, but believing, oh, that validates what he said about himself all through his ministry, and therefore I'm believing all of that as well. So to believe is not just to give mental assent to information, not just to some data, Barbara and I took a trip uh, to, to Minneapolis back uh, several weeks ago and sitting on the airplane, I don't know how many, many times I've heard this, you may be a flight attendant that's here and so you always tell the people, that I, have, I need your attention before we can take off, FAA regulations say, and they tell about in case of emergency, you know, here are the exits, here's the oxygen mask or all these things that will take place, flotation in your seat, you know, in case we land in Lake Tobosovsky or something on the way back to make it. And, so we're doing all this, and I'm reading the magazine, and I'm, I'm looking at this, checking email. and It's not too late to check email, right? I mean, we had to take off, so we're, we're doing this. And, we're, and uh, now, here's my opinion. I'm, I'm not trying to sound funny, but what would, what would make that information urgent? I think they said right when you're sitting there, simulate an explosion right outside the plane and some simulated flames. And suddenly, everybody was, you would be glued to the, to the attendant. You know, uh, you'd want to know everything about this emergency procedure. Uh, what a change. Did you know it before? Yes, I knew it. I knew the data. I knew the facts. I'd heard it. I would say I agree with it. Yes, that's a good thing as well. But it wasn't vital. It wasn't applied. It, it, there wasn't an urgency that I felt, I've got to act upon this. That's the information that's to be received and how it's to be received. So there's also a commitment to be made. Throughout the New Testament, people are invited and urge to believe in Jesus. Now, this isn't an English lesson, but it's an interesting preposition because literally it means believe into Jesus. We don't talk that way. Here, I want you to believe, believe in America, believe into America. Well, what do they mean? It's like this. If we're standing outside on the sidewalk and here this building, the doors are open, and you say, I want to go into that building. I want to be in the building. Then you step from outside the building into the building. Once you step into the building, you are in the building. We don't say, he's into the building. <laughs> well, that might be, you might have some problems, he's into, he's into buildings. But he's into this building. He is in the building. In the New Testament, we're told, believe into Jesus. When I put my trust and faith in him, now I have moved. I am in Christ. I came into Christ, now I am in Christ. The theological term for that is there is a mystical union now between the believer and Christ where he dwells in us, and you hear people talk about receiving Jesus, where he lives, he dwells in me now. That is from believing into him, and that invitation comes to us all. But that invitation is not an invitation to hang on your refrigerator and think you may or may not go, you may RSVP or not. 
this invitation is more like a marriage proposal. And a marriage proposal demands a response. it's, It's not an open-ended invitation. It demands a response, and that's when we're told, believe in Christ, trust in Christ. It is is a a marriage proposal. Thirty-five years ago, I proposed my wife. And I flew from South Florida up to to, uh, North Alabama, to Huntsville, Alabama, and I proposed her. Now, what if I had said, "Uh, Barbara, I... I love you. I want, I want us to spend our lives together. Will you marry me? And what if she had said, that's an interesting way to look at things. You know, you've got some really good points that what you've said. I think I need to think about that. Or if she just said, that's, that's nice. And then proceeded to go get in the car. I need an answer. I need, we can hear the invitation to receive Christ to repent, to turn to him and say, you know, it does, it's got some good points. Um, I, I may think about that. Well, it demands a response. And there comes a point in time when I have the opportunity to sit down and talk to people who don't believe or say they don't believe, I go through the gospel. It takes me about 45 minutes to do so. And then I like to say, you've got to make a decision about this. And two or three days from now, I'm going to call you and ask you what you decided. And you tell me, do you want to accept Christ or reject him? Because that's what we're all doing. Maybe you don't have someone calling you and asking you, but to walk away from the invitation is to reject it. Do you really believe he's the son of God? Mark is asking, is Christ your all? Is he beautiful to you? Will you give up anything and everything for him? Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we, in our lives, we represent a lot of different things, and our trust is in a multitude of things. We, we pray for our, our standing before you, that our hope would not be in our own works, our own goodness, or our own efforts, for that's not enough, but only in the work of Christ who accomplished everything and on, on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.